0: Matthew 7, I'll read for us, verses 6 through 11. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos or Amon and Amon the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Je- uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is the second part of Matthew's genealogy and I'll pray the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word and seal it to your hearts, even when it is just a list of names. <laughs> do you ever wish that you were a king for a day? No, some of you are saying no, really? King for a day, what would you do if you were a king for a day? Uh, I asked my daughters that question and uh, was informed that if they were a king or a queen for the day, they would order breakfast right away. That's good thinking, good thinking right there. Would you want to be king for a day? And most people would say yes because they can command people. After all, when you're a king or uh, a queen, you have subjects and subjects have to obey your bidding. You have to do what you want them to do and you don't have to justify yourself at all. There's no asking why to the king. It's a lot like being a parent, I think sometimes. <laughs> no, that's just silly, not at all. A king has power and so if you were king for a day there's only a limited amount of things you could do i'm sure you could issue some pardons or whatever but you couldn't you know chart domestic policy for the foreseeable future if you were king only for a day but a week or a month or a generation and now you're talking now you can get some stuff done it would be exciting to be king for a day or for a lifetime let me flip that around would you want to be under a king and americans we almost have to answer no to that question (laughs) Uh, That was asked of us before, King George III, he was relatively young when he became king and I think he went insane after that and the United States rebelled. Uh, And if you lose the 1700s Americans, if they can defeat you in a war, then you're doing something really bad as a king. (laughs) And that's what happened to him. He was overthrown and for that reason, our worldview, it's baked into our worldview that we reject the idea of a king. Kings are, generally speaking, antithetical to democracy, antithetical to freedom, You can't be free if you have a king. In fact, the political definition of freedom is contrary to the very idea of a king. You can't be a free people if you have a king with authority. The world is filled with kings who oppress religious freedom and who oppress their people's freedom and human rights even. The basic step of freedom is overthrowing a king. Our own culture bears that out. Nevertheless, the Bible describes God as a king, and there are promises in the Bible about his kingdom being established on earth. And in fact, in Matthew's genealogy, when it describes the coming of Jesus Christ, it begins connecting him as the descendant of Abraham. We looked at that last week, and then right away goes into proving that he is the son of David. He is, in verse six, descended from David, the king. David is identified uniquely here in this genealogy. He is the one person who is called the king. There is no king but David in this list. And the descendants after him, of course, when you're familiar with the Old Testament, they all reigned as kings, but David was the king. If you go back up to chapter one, verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is, it begins with the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yes, Jesus is Jewish, but More importantly than that, according to Matthew, more primary than his Jewish identity even, is the fact that Jesus descends from David, that he is king. And the problem is we don't want to be under a king any more than the early Americans did, any more than the Jews really did when Jesus came to them. They end up rejecting Jesus as their king because he was a king that refused to work for them Jesus exerted authority. He had integrity in his teaching. He elevated himself above the religious leaders of the day, and so they rejected him as king because he acted like one. Nevertheless, Matthew here, verse six, describes David as the king. Why is David among all the kings in this list? Why is he the one that's identified as king? And that's because it's a reference to the Davidic covenant. And so I want you to keep your finger there in Matthew 1 or, or not. I don't know. Matthew's easy enough to find. But flip back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Earlier in your Bible, 2 Samuel 7. And this is where you encounter David, who will be identified as the true king of Israel. This 2 Samuel 7 takes place in a time period when David is new in Jerusalem. David had already been king for seven years where he was reigning in Hebron and in this year of his life he goes to Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem and makes it the capital of the Israelites. All 12 tribes are under unified authority, all 12 tribes recognize David as king and now Israel's capital is in Jerusalem, the city up in the mountains there, isolated so to speak from the rest of the nation and yet very central to it. For the first time in world history, the capital of the Jewish people is set up in Jerusalem. David then purposes to build a house for God. And you perhaps are familiar with the story. He has built his own house and now he wants to build a temple for God and Nathan the prophet comes and stops him and says, no, you're a man of blood. You may not build a house for God. In fact, the Lord doesn't dwell in a tabernacle made by man, it says. But one of David's descendants, he will get to build the house. And this is the promise here. You can pick it up in the middle of verse 11. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. (laughs) I'd love that turn of expression there. David says, I want to make you a house, God. And God says, hey, let me make you a house. (laughs) Who's making a house for whom here? I'll build you a house, God says. When will he do it? Well, verse 12 answers, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. That's a euphemism for when you're dead. David, when you're dead and buried, then I will raise up your offspring after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There's a lot in that verse right there. I'll raise up your offspring. That word offspring there is the word for seed. We looked at this word last week. It's the offspring of Abraham. So if you go back early in the Bible, Genesis 3, sin enters the world. God tells mankind that a savior will come. The savior will be born to a descendant of Adam. The savior will be a human being. And then in Genesis 12, it narrows the scope. The Savior will be the seed, the descendant singular, the descendant of Abraham. So the Savior will not come from the Amalekites or the Americans. The Savior will come from the Israelites, the seed of Abraham. Now Israel has 12 tribes and they're in the land and God narrows it even more and says, in fact, the Savior will come from the offspring, the line of David. So just like there was a line from Adam and then a line from Abraham, now it says there will be a line from David. The Savior will not arrive immediately. Immediately. The Savior, there'll be generations. Who knows how long, it doesn't say, but it will be a long time later. Just like the Savior has been a long time since Abraham, a long time since Adam, it will be a long time from David as well. David will be dead when the Savior comes. The Savior Savior will take the throne of David long after David is buried. How will the Savior get on David's throne? Well, I will raise him up, verse 12 says. God will do this. In fact, the end of verse 12, he will come from your body, so he'll be biologically related to David, yet I will establish his kingdom. David, you'll be dead, but he will be from you and I will be the one who builds his kingdom. He, verse 13 says, will build a house for my name. He's the one that gets to build my house. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now to understand that verse, remember that David has two structures he's working on. He has his own house where the king will live. And then he has a second house for, the, for God, that will be his temple. And that's what God tells him you cannot build. Here, God says, I will build myself a house for worship in addition to your throne, your kingdom. This is fulfilled in Acts 15 through the church. Acts 15, this is the verse of the disciples in Acts 15. Um, point to when they are describing the tent of David that had fallen over and now the church has built it back up. So the church in that sense becomes a house for worship. We are Jews and Gentiles together in one body. We are a house of worship built by the Savior. So we understand that part. But the second house, the throne, that's what I want to focus on this morning. I will establish, verse 13 says, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now in a generic sense, God is the father of all living, and in a generic sense, every believer is a son or daughter of Abraham and a son or daughter of God, in the generic sense. But this is not talking about anything generically speaking here. In a unique way, God will be the father of the Savior, and in a unique way, the Savior will be a son to the father. I don't know if David or Nathan understood everything in this prophecy but as the rest of scripture unfolds solomon is going to describe the savior as the eternal son of god the very image of god eternally begotten by the father the savior is the unique son of god the image of god the father has an image of himself that image is the son that image will put on human flesh add a human nature and be born on this world as the savior Entirely God and entirely man. Fully God, fully man. Two natures together. And you see that alluded to right here. He will be the father, our heavenly father will be his father uniquely. And the savior will be a son to him uniquely. Verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of man. The savior will have sin given to him. And when he sins, He will be disciplined by the Father. Now we know when we meet Jesus Christ, he is sinless. He never actually sins. And yet our sin is imputed to him. Our sin is given to him. And so it's not contrary to the Davidic covenant for God to punish the Savior for our sin. In fact, it's part of the covenant he makes with the offspring of David here that he will be disciplined for sin nevertheless verse 15 says my steadfast love my covenant keeping his said is the hebrew word my covenant keeping eternal steadfast love will never depart from him what a contrast with saul saul lost god's love it was torn away from him remember saul in the was supposed to wait for samuel to come saul didn't the prophet comes samuel comes and confronts saul and rips the kingdom from him And God says, I will never rip it from David. It will be his forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. A throne shall be established forever. Do you notice the key word here? Forever, forever, forever. God will do this and it will last forever Remember, this is not something that happens in David's lifetime. David has his throne. He is reigning over Israel in Jerusalem. But it's pointing forward to a future time. A future king will come and he will reign on David's throne and when that king takes David's throne, his kingdom will last forever. You can flip back now to Matthew chapter one. Understand that this is an important moment in redemptive history. God for the first time in redemptive history has taken the sides with kingdoms. Before this covenant, he had never taken sides before. Even for Israel in the exile, when they were Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God was, you couldn't say God was on Israel's side. God gave them their freedom from Egypt, but then God proceeded to kill every single one of them except two people. That's hardly saying God is on their side. When they entered the promised land, the book of Judges, was God on the side of Israel? Well, sort of, he kept them there and protected them, but he also raised up all their adversaries for him. That's the repeated phrase in the book of Judges. God kept sending them enemies to punish them for their sins. Was God on Saul's side when Saul was Israel's first king? Well, no, God opposed him and ripped the kingdom from him. But now for the first time, you have God saying there will be a throne, David's descendant will be on it, and I will be on his side forever and ever and ever. So, who is the descendant of David that reigns forever from his throne? And that's where this genealogy is going. Obviously, the genealogy is arguing that it's Jesus. I'm not going to make like, some kind of fake suspense here, like, whoa, who could it be? <laughs> Let's find out. Now, we know that it's Jesus, but I want you to read this from the perspective of the Jews that don't know it's Jesus... And they're going to be forced to go through the list of David's descendants. Remember all of the Pharisees in Jesus's life are expecting the savior to come. They're expecting the messianic king to come and claim David's throne and he'll reign just like David. And so to get there, Matthew is going to drag them through the history of their kings. Because the savior will come from their line. And so let's look at this list of kings that we find here as we go through this. You first meet David. David was a godly man, a man after God's own heart. He's the one that received the covenant. He also had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and that's even mentioned there at the end of verse six by the wife of Uriah. It's not even, it's using the language from 2 Samuel. That's what 2 Samuel 7 calls her, or 2 Samuel 12 calls her before David repents, is the wife of Uriah, and that's the phrase that gets used here, but just reminding you that David was godly, but he was a sinner as well. David had Solomon, Was Solomon godly? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he wrote books of the Bible. He's got that going for him. (laughs) He's also a horrible compromiser, invited idols and pagan worship into his life and by his life into God's house and into the Israelite world. He was enough of a mixed bag. I think Solomon was intentionally a mixed bag by God and God's providence to make it clear to us that Solomon is not the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I think that should have been obvious from 2 Samuel 7 anyway, because in 2 Samuel 7, it says the king will be raised up after David's already dead. David wasn't dead when Solomon was born, and so that doesn't, I don't think, work. Nevertheless, Solomon had so many issues. He's not the savior. His throne did not last forever. After Solomon comes Rehoboam, who is horribly foolish. If you had to describe Rehoboam in one word, that one word would be foolish. He took over Solomon's advisors. Solomon had very wise advisors. Solomon was the wisest person who'd ever lived. He had wise advisors around him. They became Rehoboam's advisors, and Rehoboam fired them all. Cleaned house. <laughs> Replaced them with his, you know, his young homies that were foolish. And he said, You know what? My father was, my father disciplined you. I'm going to hit you with scorpions. What kind of person says that? <laughs> What kind of king says that? You know, I'm gonna make you guys respect me by attacking you with scorpions. Not a very good politician. At least politicians would know to lie about that kind of thing. (laughs) Rehoboam provoked civil war. Because of his foolishness, Israel revolted. 10 of the tribes split off from the other two. Never again until the book of Revelation will the 12 tribes be united. Because of Rehoboam's foolishness, there's now a difference between Israel and Judah. The line of David is in Jerusalem with Judah, not in Israel. So, from this point on, because of Rehoboam's wickedness, Israel becomes outcast. Israel becomes, in a sense, rejected by God. They'll be exiled hundreds of years even before Judah is. But the line of David leaves Israel and goes through Judah and Jerusalem, followed by Rehoboam, followed by Abijah. Abijah, 1 Kings 15 2, brings in idols and starts Israel worshiping these idols. His dad, Rehoboam, had built cows. Abijah has them worship at them and adds to them. He's followed by Asa. And by the way, this genealogy is not exhaustive. It's not every king Israel had. You know that from the book of First Kings. Several are missing. Several kings are missing from this. Matthew is selected just like he did before David. He selected 14 names from Abraham to David, 14 names of kings, 14 names in the exile. He's building up three groups of 14 to help you memorize them. How's that going, by the way? Asa, we jump to him, is a godly king. He was godly because he prayed. The Lord heard his prayer. He's followed by Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat also prayed a wonderful prayer. Jehoshaphat prayed, Lord, may our eyes always be on you. I just love that expression from King Jehoshaphat. It's a great way to pray. You could pray that in your own life. Lord, help my eyes always be on you. He was followed by Joram. Joram went back to Baal worship. Joram was awful. Joram married Ahab's daughter. Ahab was the king of Israel, remember Israel bad. (laughs) Joram married Ahab's daughter, which doesn't, I mean, how bad could it be to marry the princess of Israel? Well, her mother was Jezebel. Jezebel was horrible. Jezebel was the worst queen Israel ever had, which made Ahab the worst king they ever had. And Joram marries her daughter, importing Baal worship into Israel. Eventually we get to Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king, very good king. But at the end of his life, he went into the temple as if he were a priest and God struck him with leprosy. And I find that remarkable that you have a godly king who acts like a king and a priest and God strikes him with leprosy. What a contrast with Jesus who is both a king and priest. It lets you know that even the godly king in the line of David is no savior. He can have no priestly duties. Followed by Jotham. All we know about Jotham is that he was a builder. He built these incredible uh, facilities he renovated the temple followed by ahaz who was a wicked sinner very interesting verse about ahaz the more god put difficulty in ahaz's life the more he turned to sin oftentimes a godly person is hit with difficulty and trials and turns to the lord ahaz was hit with trials and turned towards sin hezekiah was an incredible king strategic with with military and how he defended Israel from the Assyrians. It was remarkable victories that God gave King Hezekiah, miraculous victories. The angel of the Lord slaughtered all kinds of Assyrians to protect Jerusalem under King Hezekiah's leadership. 2 Kings 18.7 says Yahweh was with Hezekiah in whatever he did. What a great epitaph to have right there. God was with him in everything he did. But he wasn't the savior and his son Manasseh, was the worst king they ever had. If Hezekiah was the best king they ever had, he was followed by Manasseh, the worst one they ever had. I mean, he packed out the temple with idols. You couldn't fit more idols in there. It looked like some kind of Buddhist shrine in there. The temple did because of Manasseh. And Manasseh was so wicked that he was taken captive by the Assyrians who then threw him back. They led him into captivity and then they didn't want him anymore and sent him back. (laughs) What a... You know, imagine somebody saying, I wanna punish Israel, so I'm gonna give them their king back. That's what happened with Manasseh. And the strange thing about Manasseh, at the very end of his life described in 2 Chronicles, not in 1 Kings, or, or 2 Kings, but in 2 Chronicles, 2, 2 Kings 21 is Manasseh's story, but 2 Chronicles describes Manasseh's conversion. At the end of his life, he comes back into Israel, he goes into the temple, he sees all the idols, and he's cut to the quick, and he starts throwing the idols over the temple wall. I just would love to be a spectator to that. If I could go back in time, that would be a crazy scene to watch. The king walks in the temple, next thing you know you see idols (laughs) flying over the wall. That's Manasseh. God lets Manasseh convert at the end of his life to just give a little lesson to Israel. The worst king you've ever had can still get converted. I mean, that is just a gospel picture right there. He's followed by Amon, his son, Amon reigned for 2 years who forsook Yahweh the scripture says only a king for 2 years and then he was killed some some versions there say Amos but I think it's better rendered Amon he was killed by his associates people that put up with Manasseh's leadership killed Amon <laughs> followed by Josiah Josiah was a super godly king. Josiah is the one who found the book of the covenant in the temple. All the idols were thrown out. Josiah walks in there and finds the, the covenant. Actually, his priest found the covenant and brings it. And Josiah reads it, makes the whole nation listen to him read God's law. An incredible story of revival followed by Jeconiah. Josiah's revival, too little, too late. Jeconiah, his son, becomes king. And Jeconiah is again a horrible king. Jeconiah has a, a brother who's king first. That's the one who cuts out scripture from the book of Jeremiah and you know, tr- throws away the book of Jeremiah. And so God rewrites history, writes his brother out of the line of the throne. When he dies, Jeconiah becomes king. His brother is even left out of the genealogy. Goes straight to Jeconiah. Jeconiah is cursed by Jeremiah too. Jeremiah tells Je- Jeconiah, you're not, you're cursed are you. You're not gonna have any descendants on the throne. None of your children will be king. You're not gonna have any sons even. So how does the genealogy keep going after him? That's for next week. (laughs) What's the point of that list of kings? None of them are the savior. What a a mess this line of kings are. None of them are the savior. Some good, most bad, none of them Christ. The point is, 1 Kings 15 verse four, nevertheless for David's sake Yahweh has given him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him who will establish Jerusalem forever. That's 2 Kings 15, verse 4. Despite all these wicked kings, there will be a light in Jerusalem, and that light will sit on David's throne and shine forever. So how does this relate to us this morning in the Gospel of Matthew? The Gospel of Matthew is often called the Gospel of the kingdom. You know, the different Gospels have different focuses and different things, you know, example Uh, John would he's often called the I am gospel it's all the I am statements it begins with Jesus being the word of God and the creator and he is you know light and Life and love and bread of life, that's the Gospel of John. Mark is the amazing Jesus, that's the repeated phrase in the Gospel of Mark, one after another, Jesus is just amazing, everybody was stunned by him, that's Mark's Gospel. Well, Matthew's Gospel is the Gospel of the kingdom. 52 times in Matthew's Gospel, there is teaching on the kingdom. It is the most common theme in this Gospel, over and over and over again, you're driven to the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, let me rattle off some of the ways. I won't give you all 52, but I'll come pretty close (laughs) that Matthew teaches us about the kingdom. You'll know these verses, but I don't know if it's hit you how they're all packaged here in Matthew to introduce you to the kingdom of Israel. Matthew 8, verse 11 says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be in the, the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, verse 10, you pray in the Lord's Prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is at hand, Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 7, wherever he's preaching. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom. Whoever pursues wisdom is a citizen of the kingdom, Matthew 5, 19 says. If you pursue wisdom, you can be a citizen of the kingdom. And That's bad news for the Pharisees, because Matthew 5, verse 20, says the Pharisees won't be allowed in the kingdom. <laughs> Matthew 8, verse 12, many will try to enter the kingdom, and they will fail. In fact, they'll be cast out or darkness. But the kingdom itself, Matthew 12, verse 25, is not divided. The kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. God's kingdom is not divided. And God's kingdom does advance in this world by force. Matthew 11, verse 12, the kingdom of God advances through violent men and the violent take it by force. Nevertheless, Matthew 13, verse 11, says the kingdom is shrouded in mystery. And then it follows a series of parables where Jesus says, how can I explain the kingdom to you? Let me give you some examples. 13.24, the kingdom could be compared to a man who scatters seed. And the seed will grow and produce a harvest. Or Matthew 13.31, the kingdom could be described as a grain of mustard seed. It's small, but it will produce trees for the nations. 13.44, the kingdom of God can be compared to a treasure hidden in the fields. Or like a merchant searching for fine pearls. Or like a fisherman who casts his net and brings in a massive catch. Those are all things you could describe the kingdom of God like. Jesus then follows that by saying there are some people with him at that moment that will not die before they see the son of man in his kingdom. Which is fulfilled in Matthew 16 with the transfiguration. They look at Jesus in his glory and they see him in the power of his kingdom. Then Jesus leaves the mountain goes down from the Transfiguration and tells the the disciples and the crowd that's there up in Caesarea Philippi, he tells them, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But not everyone will do this, Jesus says, because he then compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who has a wedding feast and invites people and they don't show. And so he sends his servants into the street to go find them and make them come to his kingdom. Then he wraps all of this up by teaching his disciples the kingdom of God. It's like a king who gets appointed to have a kingdom and he's gotta go away to receive it and then return to take control of it. You think, what is? there's no analogy like that in our own worlds. It'd be like if all the governors had to get sworn in in Washington, D.C., which doesn't work from Virginia because that wouldn't be, you know what I mean. But like the governor of California gets elected. He's got to travel to Washington, D.C. to get sworn in and then travel back to California to take his state. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. And you think, how could that be? And then he compares it to the ten virgins who are waiting for the wedding feast. And they don't bring enough oil and they're not paying attention and so the feast starts without them and they can't get in and they're locked out from the kingdom. When you take all that together you get this powerful image of the kingdom of God coming to the world, being rejected by the people it's given to, the Jews, and the king has to go away knowing that he will come again to establish his kingdom and throw those people who rejected him into outer darkness. That's how Matthew describes the kingdom. The longest sermon in the book is the Sermon on the Mount, which is about kingdom ethics, how to live as a citizen of the kingdom. Kind of like living as a citizen in exile. Well, that's what the kingdom is like. Who does the book of Matthew say the king is? And this is where you have a pretty radical contrast. The book of Matthew says a lot about the kingdom, but the concept of the king is Is very sparse, only a few verses. Matthew 1, verse 6, David is called the king. Matthew 2, verse 1, Herod is called the king. Uh oh. Herod's not from the line of David. He can't be the king. Well, don't sweat too much because Matthew 2, verse 2, the wise men show up and say, Where is he who was born king of Israel? Unlike the usurper Herod. Where is the legitimate king of Israel? Remember, they had no king then. They were Romans. They served under Caesar. But the wise men say, "No, there's someone here who was born the king. And then the book goes on. And you don't get this thing cleared up, do you? Until the end of Jesus' life, when Jesus is setting up for the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, get me the donkey, And announce to people, Isaiah 32 is fulfilled in your hearing. Behold, daughter of Zion, here comes your king riding on the back of a donkey. Just like Isaiah 32 said. So Jesus identifies himself as the king at the end of his ministry by fulfilling a very kingly promise. And so at his trial, because of that, at his trial, remember they asked him, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And he doesn't answer. So they make a sign for him. It says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And they mock him. The crowds mock him when he's on the cross. They say, here sits the king of Israel. Let him get himself down from the cross. A very interesting way to heckle someone who's being crucified. Pretend it is a king being crucified. How would his kingship let him get out of the cross? Do kings have supernatural powers to take the nails out of their wrists? Maybe it's an allusion to his Army would come rescue him if he were really a king, which is ironic because the disciples of Jesus went into hiding. I think it's an allusion to the Davidic covenant. That if you are the king of the Jews, if you are the king promised in the line of David, you're not going to die on a cross. You're supposed to reign forever. You're supposed to reign forever. The Pharisees are confronted with Jesus who claims to be king and they decide to kill him, they would rather have no king than this king. Jesus didn't cater to them. He didn't give them what they wanted, which is the nature of a king, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the whole point. (laughs) It's astonishing to me, the Pharisees wanted God to send his king, wanted the king to sit on the throne of David. They were so badly looking for the Davidic king, they get the king and they reject him because the king is exerting authority over them. What did they think would happen? (laughs) and so they end up crucifying Jesus. But that is not where the kingdom story ends. The kingdom story goes from there to Jesus saying the gospel of the kingdom will go into all of the nations. It will go into all of the nations and then the end will come. So that's identifying Jesus as the king that his gospel we preach to the world. That then turns to the question of where is this kingdom? There are many people who say the kingdom is not future. There is no future kingdom. The kingdom is everywhere there is Christians. That's the kingdom. That's all the kingdom you get. And Jesus is sitting on the throne of David now. He's reigning in heaven from the throne of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. It's fulfilled in Jesus right now, and we are the citizens of the Davidic kingdom. But I categorically reject that because that's not what is described in the book of Matthew. I grant that Jesus is the king of the universe, He's the creator of the universe. He is the sovereign of the universe. He exercises sovereignty over the world. He is the true eternal king. But he's always been that since the moment of creation. That's not the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is not a promise that the savior will also be the eternal king of the world because he was that before David was born and before David had died know the Davidic covenant is a promise that the savior will be a king from the line of David who will reign over Israel from Jerusalem. And this is where you have a verse that you may not have noticed before kind of pop out at you. Matthew 5, verse 34, which I would put on the screen but I left my clicker in the front row. Which Dan can grab and click. Yes. (laughs) This is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is a book on kingdom ethics. And he says in there, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, remember he's rebuking the Pharisees here, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. This is Jesus' first sermon, public sermon in the gospel of Matthew, and he declares in there that Jerusalem, even at this very moment, will be the city of the great king. The line of David goes on and it goes to Jesus and he will reign from Jerusalem over Israel and to the nations that is the davidic covenant he will be a blessing to the nations through the gospel of the kingdom that goes to the nations but he is expelled from Israel just like David was by the way David was exiled by a revolt at the end of his life Jesus is turned over betrayed crucified He bears our sins while he's being crucified. No human king would do that, but he does it. Takes our sins on himself, bears God's wrath, resurrects, which vindicates that he is the Lord of life, ascends into heaven where he sits on the throne of heaven at this very moment as he reigns over the universe, but leaves us with the promise that he will come back to establish his kingdom. The last conversation he has on earth before he goes up to heaven with the disciples, he had just spent 40 days teaching them on God's kingdom. Acts chapter one, he spent 40 days teaching them on God's kingdom. The disciples' question is, are you going to set up God's kingdom here now? Now is the time to establish your kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't get to know when. You preach the gospel to the nations, and I will come back. And he goes up to heaven and the angels rebuke the disciples and say, quit looking up in the heavens. Go preach the gospel. He will come back just like he left you. He will come back physically. He will come back in his human body with his human nature and he will establish the kingdom in Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. He will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and reign over the world from there. So what does this mean for us? Well for us this means that we are to live as people of the king. If he is our king, he demands absolute loyalty from us. If he is our king, we must bow the knee of our life to him. We can serve no other kings than him. You can't serve two masters. You can't live for yourself and for King Jesus. You can't live for money and for King Jesus. You can't live for the acceptance of society and for the acceptance of your king. They're at war, there are two worldviews at war here. There's the worldview that views this world as all there is and our own power and our own prestige and our own lives as a primary importance. That view is rebellion against the true king. Jesus is the true king and we are his subjects and his world is not compatible with this. We're more than his subjects, by the way. We're also citizens. We're citizens of his kingdom. We are kingdom citizens We live out the Sermon on the Mount because we have kingdom ethics. We worship our king because we belong to his kingdom. We're loyal to him. We recognize that every conflict of worldviews is a conflict of kingdoms. Our worldviews marriage one way that's different than us. That's because they don't see our king and worship him. Our worldview views money and work and family all through a different lens than Jesus does. And they're hostile and there's no compromise in this war because it's it's an issue of which king do you worship? I fear that as Americans we don't often think of what it means that Jesus is our king enough. We've got the idea of kingship diluted and removed from our minds. Even salvation becomes, you know, democratized. You know, I vote for Jesus kind of thing. You don't vote for him. He's the king. He is the king, and if he's the king of your life, you owe him obedience, you owe him allegiance, you owe owe him loyalty in every area of your life. And when you think like that, you appreciate that sin is actually treason. Sin isn't just making bad choices that will mess up your life. Sin is open revolt against the king of heaven. And the final way the New Testament describes the kingship of Christ, describes us as ambassadors We're ambassadors to the kingdom, which does not make sense if this is the kingdom now. You don't have an ambassador to a place that's there. There's no ambassador to the United States of America in the United States of America. There's no kingdom ambassadors in the kingdom. We're sent to a world where the kingdom is not. We're subject to the king. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're living out kingdom ethics. And we're waiting for the time when David's descendants will return to earth and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, the city of the great king, and reign from there over the world for a thousand years. At the end of those thousand years, he brings an end to history, rolls up the kingdom, rolls up the church. We are all then all in all and turns us over to the father. We enter the eternal state where he will still sit on the throne of David and reign over us even into eternity. Lord, we're grateful that you are the eternal king. You are our ambassador before the heavenly father. We are your ambassadors here on earth. You are the king that reigns over us. You are the high king of heaven and you are the true king of Israel. As you look to Matthew's gospel here, we see the lengths to which he went to establish that you are the descendant of David. You are the true king of Israel. In a sense, we are filled with sorrow that the Jews rejected your kingdom. But in a sense, we are filled with a providential joy. It's through their rejection that the church exists. It's through their rejection that we are grafted in. And so we don't rejoice at their sin. We do rejoice at the fact that you use the cross to build yourself a house of worship. So that's us this morning, Lord. We are here in your house of worship. We worship you. We recognize the true temple is your body. The true temple is now the church we are built together through a shared faith in you, Jesus Christ, our King. We bow the knee to you and to no one else. We give you loyalty. We worship you, we serve you, and we pray that you would send us into the world this week to advance your gospel to the nations. I pray for anyone here this morning that has never given their life to you. I pray this morning they would. I pray this morning they would see you as the king, that they would see there is no other king, that they would just see you. I pray they would repent from their sin and believe that you, their king, died on the cross so that they might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Your kingdom is forever. If we're citizens in it, we will reign with you forever. We look forward to that day. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.